Well, if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 42. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one at the end of the service. We have uh, one uh, that can belong to you. Um, a few nights ago, I was watching uh, Thursday night football featuring uh, Pastor Brandon's favorite team, the Tennessee Titans. And, uh, and I'm watching this, and what I noticed was there was a recurring commercial. It wasn't really so much a commercial, but really a teaser for the upcoming 11 o'clock news. And so I saw this maybe three or four times, and it was a teaser for a story that was coming up, and it said, depression hits hardest during the holidays. That was a story that they were going to discuss at the 11 o'clock news. Last night I was having a hard time sleeping, and uh, as I lay in bed, I picked up my phone and started looking at sports scores and looking at meaningless stuff. And I decided just for a few moments to check out Facebook. And the first post that I saw last night was from a young single woman who wrote, this is a Facebook friend of mine, who wrote, I'm eating for two this Christmas for me and my depression. Now, as I continue to look through Facebook posts, of course, there were the uh, postings about Christmas parties and uh, pictures featuring decorations and Christmas lights and all of those things. And uh, there were the, uh, the pictures of uh, uh, various spreads and, again, decorations and ideas on how to cook the special meal for the holidays. So interspersed with the celebration pictures, though, were accounts of sadness and loneliness and despair. Early this morning, I read an article which said that around Christmas time, more Christians are persecuted in other places in the world than throughout the rest of the year. As you realize that in countries like Iran and Egypt and Sudan and China, governments arrest more Christians this time of year than throughout the rest of the year combined. In fact, one article I read suggested that five times more Christians will be persecuted during this month than throughout the rest of the year. And I guess all of what I heard and read just served as anecdotal evidence of what we already know to be true. Even though Christmas is a wonderful time of year, this is the greatest time of the year. We celebrate, we have families together, we enjoy the lights and the food and the gifts and, and all of those things. Even though it is a wonderful time of the year, even Christmas doesn't provide a break from the suffering that we see in our world. In fact, some ways, it actually, the suffering seems more acute this time of year. We have people in our church struggling with loneliness, depression, folks who have been diagnosed with, diagnosed with cancer, folks whose marriages are just barely hanging on, folks who have children who have threatened suicide, parents who are exhausted, children who've lost their parents, grandparents who are not permitted to see their own grandchildren. The holiday season is no exception to the pain that we see in this world. And this is to say nothing of the struggle we, we experience internally. Our own thoughts of inadequacy and fear, the stress at work, even moments of self-loathing. The doors of the church building don't keep out the brokenness, do they? We sing songs like Silent Night, Holy Night, All is Calm, All is Bright. And we think, what Christmas was that? Doesn't describe our last Christmas. Certainly doesn't describe the very first Christmas when God came down in the flesh and there wasn't even room for him in the inn. When the God-man enters the world, he does so 
to the stench and filth of an animal stable, only to have a price on his head, the edict of King Herod. It wasn't the first Christmas, and it hasn't been any Christmas since then. The whole point of Christmas is that nothing was calm. Nothing was bright. Darkness was over the world. And that's why Jesus came. That's why God entered the confines of this world to fix what was broken once and for all. Last week, we looked at the origin of all this pain and suffering. We said, you know, it goes all the way back to what happened in that garden on that day by that tree. And we said, because of uh, the, the revolt of our first parents, Adam and Eve, everything would be infected and affected. Sin would, would increase and it would affect everything like a rock going into a placid lake. The ripples would be ever expanding. But in the middle of that curse, God says, he reminds us, he hasn't given up on the earth. He hasn't abandoned his creation. In fact, he announced that there is one, the seed of the woman, who would crush that wicked liar Satan and restore everything that was broken by the fall. This morning, we continue to look at that unfolding story of redemption. I, I said over this Advent season, we're kind of looking, we're zooming out and taking a, a very big picture approach. And this morning, we're going to see more about that rescuer, more about that redeemer, the seed of the woman, and his plan to make everything right with the world. By the way, there won't be three points this morning. It kind of goes against my preacher self, but I decided that I want to just focus on one thing this morning, and that is I want to show you how this redeemer will go about buying back everything that's been lost and stolen by the curse of sin. So Isaiah chapter 42, let me read the whole section as verses 1 through 9, and then we'll discuss it. This is the word of the Lord. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, Spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for my people, for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Isaiah is a long book. As you know, if you're reading, if you've read through the Bible in a year, and it's one that's easy to kind of get uh, behind in, um, it's one of the longest books of the Bible. We're jumping in kind of toward the end, so it's going to require a little bit of history to make sense of what's going on here in this passage. Now, let me set it up for you this way. Way back in time... Thousands of years ago, God appeared to a man named Abram, and he said to him, I'm going to make of you a great nation. 
In fact, God said, I'm going to show the whole world my grace and my mercy, my power, my compassion, and it's going to come through you and your descendants. So from your children and your grandchildren, your great-great-grandchildren and so on, I'm going to show the world something of my majesty, to show the world something of my greatness and my power. In fact, from you, God says to Abraham, I will form a nation who will be a light to a dark world. I'll be pointing people to myself. And from that nation, Israel would also come, the one we read about last week, the seed of the woman who would destroy Satan. Well, God would make several promises to this nation, Israel. A promise of peace, victory, a land of its own. A promise of a king who would reign forever, never be defeated. Among all the nations of the world, Israel was set apart. God said to Israel... God says in Amos, of all the nations of the world, you only have I known. You only have I chosen. You will be my people and I will be your God. When my father left my family, my mother, my sister, and I, uh, I was five years old. And at that time, my dad's mother became a regular fixture in my life. My grandmother, I don't know if she was trying to make up for the absence of my dad or if she felt guilty because it was her son that had abandoned our family. But all of a sudden, my grandmother was sort of an ever-present part of our lives. Uh, She was always around. She would take us places. She would sing songs to us. She would read us stories. And because uh, my sister and I were the children of her oldest son, and at that point, actually her only grandchildren, she had a very special place in her heart for us. She was very protective of us. My grandmother was a fiery woman, overflowing with personality and charisma. She was only about 5'5", and she was painfully thin, but she had this huge hair, this enormous hair. I mean, I, it was, I don't know what you call it. It was a bouffant or a, a gray fro or something, but it was this big, gigantic hair. hair. And she was, uh, my grandmother... We called her Mom Mom. I have no idea how that came about. Made it for a confusing uh, uh, house. But we called her Mom Mom. And Mom Mom was this incredible feisty woman. She was a tad bit anti-authority. So she did the opposite of what anybody told her to do. If somebody told her to do something, you could be sure she would do just the opposite. And she remember she told me one time, I was probably seven or eight years old. She said, I want you to know if anybody messes with you, They mess with me, and they don't want to mess with me. Now, when I was eight years old, I took a lot of comfort in that. When I got older, though, I started to think, now, what in the world could she really do? I mean, again, she's 5'5". She weighed about 92 pounds. I mean, what is she going to do to somebody if they threaten me? There's nothing she can do. I guess she can make her hair even bigger and try to scare them, but there's no way she could do anything. I'm not sure how protective she could have really been. But God says to Israel... You belong to me. And if anyone messes with you, they mess with me. And God actually had the power and the ability to do something about it, as we see throughout the Old Testament. And all God would ask of Israel is, I want you to love me and to worship me only. So of all these other nations that are out there, all these other so-called gods, gods of the earth and the clay and stone and gods of the sky and the seas, all I'm saying is I want you to worship me and me alone. I'm asking for your undivided loyalty. But, of course, Israel would never provide it, at least for not any length of time. 
You follow Israel throughout the Old Testament, you see this nation continue to rebel against God over and over and over and over again. They worshipped other gods. Almost immediately after God would miraculously deliver them in some incredible way, rescuing them by his own right hand, so to speak, they would turn and then worship these gods of wood and clay and gold and silver. This went on for hundreds of years. So finally, in his fierce anger, the Lord turned his own people over to their enemies. The nation of Israel will be ransacked, enslaved by other nations. But here's the shocking part. Even in the middle of their rebellion, we see this constant rhythm of judgment followed by mercy. Even in the middle of their rebellion, God would send prophets to warn the people of Israel to show them the error of their ways, to call them to repentance and to remind them of his unfailing love for them and to remind them that he actually would provide one who would restore that relationship. He would provide for them a redeemer. Well, Isaiah 42 that I just read is about that redeemer. At the time of the writing of this passage, uh, Isaiah 42, there was great pain and upheaval in the nation of Israel. It's 700 years or so before Jesus would come. The Jewish people are in exile. They've been taken away by the Babylonians, men, women, and children, ripped away from their homes, sold into slavery, torn apart from each other. Their land had been stolen from them. Homes were wrecked. Perhaps a song they could relate to more than Silent Night was, O holy night, long lay the world in sin and error pining. The world is yearning, it's longing, it's crying for redemption, for this rescue. The people of God desperate to be delivered from slavery. Can you imagine having your own children taken from you? Being in a place where not only do you lose your job and your home, but your family is separated. And you're now enslaved under the cruel oppression of a nation that hates you. The earth pining to be free from the effects of sin. And then the songwriter writes words that would have echoed deep in the souls of these people. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. What is that hope? Well, of course, it's the redeemer, the suffering servant, the servant of God. But who is he? Well, in, you read throughout Isaiah, there are four different so-called servant songs. And they announce that someone is coming. This is a servant who, again, who will restore Israel to God. We read about the servant. There are several different servants who are described. Sometimes the servant talks about David. Sometimes the servant in, in Isaiah talks about the, the nation of Israel. Sometimes the servant, in one case, the servant talks about uh, Cyrus who would... Uh, Cyrus the Great who, of Persia who would actually deliver Israel who would destroy the, through, God, uh, through him God would destroy the Babylonian Empire and would bring it close to the 70 year exile of Jewish people so the suffering servant the servant is a reference to a number of people but we have to remember that when we read the Old Testament there is the what's called there are two reference what biblical scholars call reference there is the immediate referent which is, of course, addresses the immediate historical situation. And then there is an ultimate referent. So you read about this king. It's, also, it's often a reference to a greater king. We read about a ruler. It's often a reference to a greater ruler, 
a greater suffering servant. And in Isaiah 42, it becomes easy to see what's going on here. Yes, this was immediately about King Cyrus the Great, but it's about something else. It's about something deeper than that. Verses 1 and 2, we're told about this servant, that he is the one on whom God will place his spirit and in whom God's soul delights. So the servant is one on whom God will place his spirit and in whom God's very soul delights. Now, does this remind you of anything? Does this conjure up any memories of the New Testament writings, the Gospels? Certainly, we think about Jesus and his baptism, right? Jesus, in his early part of ministry, he's going around, he's preaching a message of repentance and faith. He's announcing the coming of the kingdom. He's led into the wilderness to be tempted, after which he encounters a man named John, of course. And John is baptizing people in the Jordan River. Had the, the, the opportunity, the privilege in February to baptize some folks in the, in the very Jordan River where John was baptizing. And then, and then Jesus comes to John and asks to be baptized. And John says, look, I, I shouldn't baptize you. You should baptize me. What are you talking about? But Jesus persists and John relents. And after Jesus is lifted up out of the water... The sky opens up, and what happens? The Spirit of God descends on Jesus like a dove, and the Father says, This is my beloved Son in whom I delight. What does Isaiah 42 say about this servant? I will put my Spirit on him. He's the one in whom I delight. Later in the same chapter, this servant is said to bring justice, but in a unique way. It won't be with a loud cry. It won't be with a bellow of victory. He will do so without even lifting his voice. A couple of years ago, Janine and I went to see this movie called Hacksaw Ridge. Ever seen the movie? It's a, many of you probably have. Um, it was a violent movie, but it was a, it was a terrific movie. Um, it told the story of a soldier in Okinawa who, during war, World War II, saved 75 people without ever firing a gun. Well, you, know, you watch that movie, and some of the battle scenes actually occur in slow motion. But in every battle scene where the American soldiers attack, they yell and they scream as loudly as they can. They shout with loud voices. This is the cry of battle. This is the way you engage. If you're to conquer an enemy, you do so loudly. You do so with the yelling and screaming and announcing. But the servant that Isaiah speaks of, though he will restore judge, justice, he will not yell or scream. He won't employ such battle techniques. He will win by being beaten. He will conquer in the most unusual of ways. He will conquer by surrendering his own life. He won't prevail with force, but with sacrifice. He will bring about justice, but through suffering. Now we're starting to see just how clearly this ultimate referent is. Of course, this is a reference to Jesus Christ. Instead of a triumphant battle cry, he enters humbly, meekly, almost unnoticeably as the unexpected child of a poor teenage peasant girl with nowhere to go. The whole thing is shocking, really. It's so scandalous that it's often lost on us today. 
His is the greatest strength imaginable. He is the most kingly of all humanity. But he is a person who would bring justice again in the most scandalous way imaginable. Now what is this justice that the servant will bring? This is really the theme of Isaiah 42. Three times in in four verses we see that this servant will bring justice. Verses 1, 3, and 4. In the Old Testament, justice is a far-reaching term. It's not simply political harmony or even global utopia. Something deeper than that. The Hebrew word mishpat is a reference to the world the way it was meant to be. This is what justice is. This is a return to the world the way it was meant to be. And of course, it's a reference to uh, horizontal peace where people are no longer at odds with each other. But it's also a reference to vertical peace, vertical harmony. The type of justice where man is not just right with other men, as in the absence of battles and wars, but the type of justice where man is actually made right with God. This is the justice that the servant will bring. And it won't be to those who have it all together, mind you. It won't be to those who believe they deserve it. It will be to those who are just barely hanging on. Look at verse 3. This is just one of my favorite poetic verses in Scripture. A bruised reed he will not break. So rich. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. Those who are hurting, those who are just scraping by, those who, like the man in Mark's gospel, said, yes, I believe, but help my unbelief. Sometimes my faith feels so strong and I feel like I can take on the world and sometimes I don't even know what I believe. Sometimes I can put my doubts aside and they no longer trouble me. But then in an instant, I can be overwhelmed with fear and doubt to the one who, again, who's just barely hanging on, those who are beaten down and written off by everyone else, those who are cast away as rejects. Jesus doesn't dismiss. He doesn't ignore. He doesn't cast away. Instead, he beckons. He mends the broken reed. He fans into a flame the barely flickering fire. Look at the intimacy of verse 6, the language here. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I miss those days when my kids were little. I love the stage they're at now, but I miss walking with them and holding their hands. They don't know where to go. They don't know how to proceed. They're totally dependent on you. There's an intimacy there. There's there's a warmth there. There's a protection there. God says, I will take you by the hand and I will keep you. How does he mend the broken reed and care for the broken? With an announcement of freedom. Freedom from the bondage to sin and shame. It's not a personal improvement plan that the servant brings. It's not a strategy for moral improvement. It's not a self-help approach. It is, in fact, a plan of rescue. I had a professor in seminary who had written extensively on, uh, uh, extensively on the Gospel of Luke. And uh, he said something one time I'll never forget. Something so simple, but so profound to me. He said, I think when we get to heaven, we're going to be very surprised by who's there and who's not there. And, I, you know, I thought about that. It took a while to to sort of marinate on that. What what does that mean? 
His point being, when we, when we, when we think about heaven, we tend to think it's a place for good people to go. That's where the good people end up. But he said, no, it's actually not that at all. Those who actually think they're good enough are the ones who never make it. Those who think they don't need a Savior are the ones who end up under God's condemnation. He said, heaven is for bad people who have been rescued by the suffering servant. Heaven is for those who recognize just how helpless and hopeless they are and actually trust in the rescue plan of someone else. Heaven's for those who, and I love Al Mohler says this all the time, heaven is for those who realize that, you know, we, we tend to think that the, the problem is out there and the solution is in here. You know, I got to find that inner strength or inner beauty or inner resolve. But Mohler says, no, actually the problem is in here and the solution is out there, meaning it comes from above. It comes from Jesus. And so heaven is not for those people who are good enough, but those who really recognize how bad they truly are. This is what my professor was saying. Those who, that we look at and say, oh, that person's really well behaved, got it all together, life's in order. Those may be the very ones we don't see in heaven. But the ones we think, oh man, can you believe what she did? Can you, you believe what he did? Did you see that? Did you read about that? Did you hear about that? But the ones who are really broken, who really cling to the cross in faith, those are the ones we may be surprised to see. Now, how do we know for sure that this passage is actually about Jesus? I've given you, I think, ample evidence, but let me give you the absolute clincher. When Jesus is in his early stages of his healing and gospel ministry, Matthew summarizes Jesus' very ministry this way. Matthew 12. This was to fulfill, that is the preaching and healing ministry of Jesus, what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen... My beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. Matthew says this is about Jesus. A smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Jesus is the one that Isaiah is writing about. And yes, he was weak and he was lowly. He was a suffering servant, but he was also strong and powerful. He commanded a storm to stop, and the storm stopped. And the people around him said, what, what kind of person is this? I've never seen anyone like this. He tells the wind to be still, and it stops. He tells the demons to flee, and they leave. Who is this man? Yes, he was weak and lowly, but he was also powerful and strong. His, powerful exceed, his power exceeding that of anyone else who would ever live. He was the servant, but he was also the creator king. The very God of the universe. Remember I said, I started out by talking about what I've, ex I've seen and experienced the last few days about the hopelessness and the darkness of our world. Begging the question, where is our hope? I love the answer that Ray Ortland provides, a great pastor in Nashville and theologian. He says, the hope of the world lies here in the servant of the Lord, the delight of God, the quiet healer, the man for others who wields the only power that exists, the power to reorder human civilization, not by bullying, but by suffering, not by imposing demands on us, but by absorbing our sins and miseries into himself. This 
is Jesus. This is the one that the prophets foretold. This is the one the historical narratives anticipate. This is the one the gospels feature. This is the one whose return the apocalyptic apocalyptic literature, say it slowly, anticipates. It's all about him. It's all about him. So what does this all mean for us? Well, all the pain and the evil and the suffering that I talked about, that we see the depression, the oppression, hatred, murder, racism, poverty, sickness, death. Jesus, the servant king, is coming again in great power to put an end to all of it. This is, this is the second advent for which we long. But it's not just a future hope. It is a future hope. But it's not just a future hope. Even in this evil world, even right now, God is in the process of restoring all things. He's bringing people to himself. He's advancing his kingdom by making people right with him through faith, forgiving them of their sins, adopting them into his family, giving people true joy. And here's the most beautiful part about this to me. This is the most arresting part about it to me. Remember what God says about his son, both in Isaiah and in Matthew. He says, this is the son in whom I am well pleased, the one in whom my soul delights. Well, for those who are in Christ, those who turned from their sin and believed on Jesus, God sees us exactly the same way. If you are in Christ this morning, you are the one in whom God's soul delights. If you've turned from your own self-salvation project, if you've come to the end of yourself, the end of your rope, you are the one in whom God's soul delights. You are his beloved son or daughter. And it's not because you deserve it. It's not because you've cleaned yourself up. It's not because you've done anything. It's because you have believed in the one who's done everything. The one who is foretold from the very beginning. For those of us who are in Christ, God sees us the same way that he sees Jesus. So if you want to know how God looks at you this morning, when he looks at you, he sees Jesus. The perfect righteousness of his beloved son credited to you by faith. Our greatest sins, our most horrific failures, our persistent shortcomings as parents, as workers, as neighbors, as pastors, as Christians, whatever it is, no longer will any of those things be held against us if we are in Christ. If you think you've done the worst thing imaginable, if you're worn out trying to live up to everybody else's expectations, if you feel like your life is an endless effort to justify your existence, you've got something in your past, maybe your recent past that nobody knows about that you think will separate you from God. Jesus says, I came to forgive you and to make you whole so that you can enjoy, most importantly, peace with God. Justice in the fullest sense of the word. Jesus, we're told, brings light to the blind, liberation from the, the dungeon of despair and self-loathing. Jesus makes us right with God when we repent of our rebellion and cling to him in faith. Turning from our self-reliance and our independence and run to him in humble trust, believing in who he is and what he has accomplished. He makes us right with God, which is humanity's greatest need. 
the need to be reconciled to God. And he does that, but he does something else. He ushers in for us God's complete and total acceptance. God's approval in Jesus. We actually become the very delight of God. Let's pray.